Hi friends, I hope you're well and have had a wonderful 2022. I hope 2023 is filled with love, compassion and good health. This week's episode is kindly supported by our friends over at Compliment. They're one of PBN's absolute favorite vegan brands right now, and they really do understand the strength of the movement is actually in the individual. They're on a mission to help each person thrive on a plant-based diet through optimized nutrition solutions designed specifically for you. They also have a goal to donate 1 million vegan meals to kids in need. All you got to do is go to lovecompliment.com, that's compliment with an E and not an I, to check out their epic January deals to support your New Year's resolutions. A lot of white chefs, a lot of white creators have profited by sharing watered down recipes from other cultures, right? Like if you Google a lot of Asian recipes, all the top results are white bloggers. And that's not to say that if you are white, you shouldn't cook Asian food. Absolutely not. But a lot of times those recipes are watered down versions. And so then people start to think that this is how a Chinese recipe should be when really the Chinese chefs and Chinese creators who are creating that, they have the actual knowledge of how to create the most delicious version of that, but their recipes aren't being showcased on Google or on YouTube or whatever it is. If you want to share recipes from a different culture, like be thoughtful, be respectful, be interested in learning. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with a vegan cook, author, and creator of the popular vegan blog, Rainbow Plum Life. Nisha Vora, whose intriguing life journey has led her from pursuing a career as a lawyer to teaching people how to master healthy and delicious vegan cooking at home. Nisha grew up in Barstow, California. As the child of first-generation Indian immigrants, she was used to having vegetarian Indian meals several times a week from an early age. She also discovered her passion for cooking at an early age, cooking meals for her family as a teenager and then furthering her cooking skills while at university. Nisha attended school at Harvard and after graduating began working as a corporate lawyer. The long hours left little time for cooking and meant having dinner at her desk most nights. After a few years, she decided to quit her job as a lawyer and pursue her passion. She backpacked around the world for several months and encountered a multitude of cultures and cuisines that inspired the next steps in her incredible journey. In 2016, she went vegan after realizing the harmful effects of meat production on animals and the planet, a decision that naturally tied in with her social justice activism. In 2017, she started working at the New York startup Hungaroot, where she was involved in food photography, recipe development, and social media. Meanwhile, she kept building Rainbow Plant Life as a side hustle, gradually starting a YouTube channel as well. Rainbow Plant Life, she has been running full-time since 2019. Nisha teaches people how to create delicious vegan comfort food. In 2019, she also published the Vegan Instant Pot Cookbook, full of wholesome, indulgent plant-based recipes, which she developed, wrote, and photographed herself. Nisha's work has been featured across publications including CNN, BuzzFeed, Forbes, Glamour, Elle, Refinery29, and many more. She is continuing to grow Rainbow Plant Life on Instagram and YouTube and is working towards her second cookbook. I'm Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It will really help get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Nisha. What a pleasure to sit down and hear your story. Thank you so much, Robbie. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Hello. Hi. Today, I'm going to try to make a vegan burrito bowl at home that's better than Chipotle's. And later, we're going to head over to my parents' house for a special little taste test to see how my version stacks up against the original. Just got to Chipotle. I'm about to do some serious scientific taste testing. Also, I haven't eaten lunch yet. 
Can you please get a burrito bowl with white rice? Sofritas, please. The corn salsa and the tomato salsa. So before we get started, as always, I'd love to ask our guests the vegan story or your plant-based story. Where did that all begin for you? How did you discover this lifestyle? Sure. Well, almost six years ago, my partner went on a business trip and whenever he's gone, I usually do something I normally don't do, which is stay up really late watching TV. And by TV, I mean like really serious documentaries. And so this particular time back in 2016, when he left, I had been vegetarian for a couple months, didn't have a really strong reason for doing it though, and was interested in learning more about where my food was coming from. So I turned on the documentary Food Inc. one night and my mind was blown. And so then I started Googling like all these other documentaries. And so over the course of three nights, I watched 10 documentaries on factory farming and big animal agriculture and animal cruelty and climate change, all these big things that obviously existed, but I was fairly just, they felt so new to me. Like I didn't know this information. And so when my boyfriend came home a few days later, he said, hi, honey, I'm home. And I said, hi, honey, I'm vegan now. And uh, he was like, wait, what happened in the last few days? And so that's, you know, how it happened. But on a more serious note, it just, it clicked so easily and quickly for me because it was just so hard to ignore the reality, right? I had never been an animal lover per se in a way that I think a lot of people who come to veganism in the beginning are, but I had always cared about these big picture values like dignity and equality and justice. And so it was very clear that animals were not getting those things. Um, and also the people weren't, right? A lot of people who were working in these factory farms and who lived in the communities around these areas were experiencing all these terrible health conditions and on a bigger scale, just the impact of climate change from animal agriculture is having all these terrible impacts on a lot of people in poor countries, even though usually wealthier countries like the United States are contributing to that output. So all of those like small picture and big picture things just kind of came to a head in a few days. And I was like, well, I can't live my life that way anymore. And so it just, it resonated with me on an identity level. So it was, it was a very quick and easy transition. You went full cold tofu, as I say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had been vegetarian for a couple months, so it was really just getting rid of the dairy, which I'm not saying was easy, but having seen all of that information and learned it so quickly in such a compact period of time, it, it felt like there was no other choice. And and when you kind of made all these realizations, like how did you feel about what you had learned? Because a lot of this information is not widely known. We are not taught sure. a lot of, well, right. really any of them children, right? Yeah. Well, I felt angry that I hadn't learned it, right? But it was happening at such a monumental scale, but nobody was really talking about it. So I was angry, but then I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just so great because now I can finally like live authentically with my values because I had for instance, gone to law school to, you know, help people. I'm using air quotes. I did want to help people, but like, it's obviously a big thing to do. And I had spent so much time working on issues of inequality against human beings um, on behalf of immigrants and people of color and low-income folks and LGBTQ folks. And so it felt very natural for me to be able to extend that compassion and empathy to animals, even though, again, I wasn't an animal lover at the time, but I knew that like being able to live this way was just more consistent with my values. And I felt like I just aligned myself more to being the person that I thought I was and wanted to be. When it comes to sort of your childhood and the food culture of your childhood, what were you surrounded with as a child food wise? Because obviously, I genuinely believe that 
you know, veganism doesn't happen overnight for most people. There has to be a seed planted within us. And we learn about the way the food system works from our family unit, really. But talk us through like the food culture that you grew up around. And how do you think that may have affected your decision really to switch to a plant based diet at you know, this point in the future? Growing up, I would say I had a very dichotomous diet. So on the one hand, my parents are immigrants from India, and they have been vegetarian pretty much their whole lives. But they did allow my sister and I growing up to eat meat. My mom would never cook it, but she would, you know, buy us like lunch meat for sandwiches. And after school practice, like dance practice or sports practices, she would take us to get fast food sometimes. So I would say from like 8am to 3pm, I had a very standard Western diet, you know, Lunchables, burgers, junk food, cow's milk with cereal, you know, all this standard stuff. But then dinner was always a home cook. Gujarati food, Gujarati is, Gujarat is a part of India where my parents are from. It's actually the state India that is, I think, has the most number, uh, highest percentage of vegetarians. And so we would eat a vegetarian home cooked meal every night for dinner. So I had exposure to these very different, two types, very different types of eating. And so I knew that like home cooked food and plant-based food was good for you and that it was very nourishing. But, you know, as a child, it's very easy to want all of that processed food and all of the junk food and to really just eat what your friends are eating. I think the good thing though, is that because I grew up in a small town in the nineties, the meat that I ate was never good. Like, you know, a lot of folks struggle with giving up meat because they have childhood memories around it, or they love the flavor. And luckily, I didn't struggle with that because I didn't have any delicious memories attached to it. I didn't have any cultural significance attached to it. And that's not to say I didn't eat a lot of meat. I certainly did eat a lot of chicken and fish, because I thought those were like the healthy <laughs> meats. But I never felt like meat was something I truly loved. And so when I went vegetarian and then vegan, it, it felt quite easy to give up meat. Dairy was a bit harder, but meat was just like, oh, that was something I used to eat for protein and because everyone else ate it. So it felt a lot easier because it was never a critical part of my food culture. I'd love to hear a bit about the sort of perhaps the challenges you faced as a as a child of immigrant parents with regards like the food culture itself, because racism in food for people from other parts of the world, particularly in the US and the UK is a huge issue. Um, I had an amazing episode with the Korean vegan Joanna Molinaro. She talked a lot about that. And she continues to talk a lot about that, about her being a young girl and how taking and we and a young woman taking food of her culture to school and being bullied and picked on. Did you ever experience any of that? How did you deal with it? I think it would be hard pressed to find a child of immigrants who grew up in the 80s or 90s who didn't experience that in some degree. Yeah. So, and again, I grew up in a small town in the 90s. So Indian food was either unheard of or not cool. And so, yes, I was ashamed of it to a certain extent, because again, as a kid, you want to just fit in and you don't want to hear all the rude jokes about your house smells like curry, even though curry smells delicious, or your parents eat weird food, you know? And so I think my parents, to their credit, you know, wanted to give me and my sister kind of the most normal upbringing they could. Uh, I think they recognized that you know, trying to like be open and bold about your like different heritage wasn't necessarily something that was going to get us very far in those circumstances. So yeah, I, I shunned Indian food for a good part of my childhood. And of course, I ate it every night for dinner, but there was always this desire to be like everybody else. And of course, now as an adult, I have the self-awareness and confidence to appreciate Indian food, to own it, to really like love it and to learn how to cook it from my mom. 
and of course now Indian food and a lot of other ethnic foods are cool. So like people also are hungry for it. And so while I am happy that that is the case, you have those childhood scars of, you know, wanting to assimilate, but never really being able to fully assimilate. How does it feel now? Um, Obviously looking at the food media world or the food influencer world, and seeing culturally specific dishes really being celebrated. And sometimes there obviously, and we'll, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about cultural appropriation over cultural appreciation, because we see there's sure. a tension yeah. there in the creator world. But let's go back a step um, and just, just generally talk about cooking. It's, a, it's an art form. There are people who love cooking and there are people who think they love cooking and think that they can cook. <laughs> You're definitely one of these people who can cook and can make beautiful food that really, really, you know, makes people want to go for it. And but that doesn't come overnight. It takes time. It takes time to take those beautiful food photos and it takes time to craft your own recipes. But just explain to us, like, how did you find that love of cooking and kind of that creation? Because you really have that, that, I feel like you have that incredible gift of bringing things to life, bringing ingredients to life in these really colorful, stunning ways. Well, thank you so much for, for saying that. I started cooking when I was about 14, 15. This was around when TiVo became popular. If anyone doesn't know what TiVo it is, it's like basically like DVRing TV shows. And it was a new technology in the early 2000s. Before Netflix. Yeah, with DVR TiVo shows on the Food Network. And I would watch them after school. And instead of like going out to parties in high school, I would go to Barnes and Nobles and I would read cookbooks. Uh, it was totally cool, by the way, just so if anyone's confused about that. But yeah, I, I really just wanted to absorb as much information as possible. I never really considered myself a creative person. I'll say that I was always like bookish and kind of school smart. And so the way I approached learning how to cook was very much in that line. And so I wanted to read and absorb as much information as possible. And I would pause the cooking shows and I would take notes and things like that. And so I developed a really strong foundation for cooking as a young person and was able then once I started doing it more professionally to apply all of those kind of cooking fundamentals and lessons that I had absorbed as a younger person into my work. And then in terms of like the food photography part, like that obviously just comes from like a lot of hard work and like practicing. I can't say that I was a natural at it to begin with, but I've always been attracted to color. And so I feel like the plant-based food is just so colorful that I was able to like channel my love for color into my food and into my food photography. Mm, it's amazing. And it's in your name as well, isn't it? In your, in your, use, <laughs> your use name or your handle, Rainbow Plant Life. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes when people hear the word salad, they think super healthy or really boring. So today I'm going to share with you my top five tips for making crave-worthy salads. We'll make three delicious and flavorful salads and I'll walk you through the tips as I make each one. So by the end of the video, not only will you have three great salad recipes, but more importantly, you'll understand the principles of making great salads so you too can make a great salad at home. So I often say to people, if you want to be healthy on a plant-based diet, it's all about eating the rainbow. Because if you don't do that, sure. you know, you can really limit your diet. And as Dr. Will Bolshevitz often talks, the amazing gastroenterologist, vegan gastroenterologist says, it's so important to have a diversity of plants on your plate as much as you can. As long as you are eating that diversity of plants, you're going to be feeding your gut microbiome all the things it needs to give you good health. But before we dive more into cooking, you were going to become a lawyer. You were studying to be a lawyer, you mentioned. That's a very different thing to, you know, what you do now. Yeah. Explain how how you shifted away from that. Because most people, a lot of people want to have, in quotes, a real job <laughs> where they are they're doing a thing where, you know, you go to the office and you do your job and then you come home. You know, we're kind of almost taught as children that you need to be a doctor or a lawyer yeah, or a, or that, all 
sort of like titles to be in quotes successful. And so sometimes it comes from parents, that pressure of like, you've got to be a doctor, you've got to be a lawyer, you've got to be a scientist or a footballer or an actor or whatever. And, and the creative arts, which is like, you know, painting and music and cooking. And, you know, sometimes people look down on, on that, that stuff and that, cre- and that creative aspect and they don't see it as a real job. I'd love to hear a bit about the, your mindset shift and how you went from, you know, lawyer to what you do now. Because obviously for a lot of people, it's a scary process giving up what's expected of them and then becoming what they really want to do, what they really feel makes their heart sing. Yeah, well... My entire life was very neatly mapped out, you know, growing up as the child of Indian immigrants, education was kind of the anchor in our lives as the number one priority. It never felt forced from my parents, though, because I always excelled in school. I liked school. I loved learning. And so that was my identity, right? Like I finished high school or secondary school, as you guys call it. Uh, I went to university. I studied political science and law. I was very interested in those topics. I then went to Harvard Law School. I then became a lawyer. So it just felt like this very easy, natural transition. But once I actually started practicing law, I was extremely unhappy. I was constantly anxious and I felt very disillusioned. I don't want to get too much into it, but legal practice in the United States can be very disillusioning because of how unequal our systems can be. And so I was just constantly stressed and anxious. At the same time, I had invested a lot into this identity of who I was. My identity had been tied up with my intelligence, my intellect for so long. And so when I finally decided I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore, it was, well, like, who am I then, right? It's, will people still think that I'm smart or that I'm hardworking? Because it's very easy to just say, hi, I'm Misha, I'm an attorney. And in most circles, people quietly see, oh, she's she's intelligent, she's ambitious, she's diligent. And I didn't realize how much that identification, like how much I had become dependent on that identification for my self-worth. So when I did make the shift out of law, which was January 2017, it was really hard at first because I didn't have that self-confidence of just being like, hi, I'm Nisha. I'm a successful content creator because I wasn't at the time, right? It was, hi, I'm Nisha and I used to be a lawyer, but now I work in food and I do some social media stuff and I do some photos of food and people are like, wait, what? Like, I clearly was not very confident in my decision, even though with the back of my mind, I knew that ultimately I wanted to build a career that would bring me happiness and meaning. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to a career and a profession that made me miserable and constantly anxious. So there was a lot of like insecurity in the beginning, but over the course of a few years and being able to really focus on my work, those feelings of insecurity and of not being good enough or not doing the things that I thought I was supposed to do or the society that I was supposed to do, all that started to mitigate and really just kind of background noise at this point. Was there a point along that journey where you were like, I can't do this legal stuff anymore. I have to focus on what you know brings me joy. Or was it a more of a gradual thing? Did something trigger it? Or was it more sort of a slow, slow burn process? It was definitely a process. So my first legal job, I worked at a big corporate law firm on Wall Street. And I knew going into that, that that wasn't going to be the career path for me. It was just a very common thing that people do after law school to kind of help pay off bills and loans and things like that. And after two years, my partner and I both quit and we did a six month backpacking trip around the world. And so that was my, I don't know, my eat, pray, love moment where I got to be like, oh my God, there's so much more to life to explore and so many more important things in life than working at a job just to pay the bills. After that, I came back to the US and I started working at a nonprofit still as a lawyer. And I thought, okay, well, this is going to be totally different. And I'm going to like really love being a lawyer, but I didn't. It was just a very different type 
of stress in a different context, in a different environment. And I would come home anxious every night and I would dread going to work in the morning. And I, over time, I was just like, what am I doing? This is not how you should live your life. You shouldn't dread getting out of bed in the morning, right? So it was definitely not, there wasn't a single moment. It was a, a gradual buildup over a couple of years. Something that will surprise you when you decide to go vegan that has nothing to do with what you're eating is the reactions you'll get from other people. When I first went vegan, I knew I would get some questions, but I was not prepared for the amount and frequency of questions I got. Why would you go vegan? Are you gonna just eat salad? Where would you get your protein? At first, when people would ask me, why would you go vegan? I basically just rambled. Animals are friends. Factory farms are bad. The earth is dying. But once I scripted out some stock responses to these common questions I was getting, it got so much easier. For one, I started to sound more convincing, which got a lot of people to take me more seriously. And two, it also reduced the amount of personal, emotional, and mental energy I had to spend to explain my lifestyle to other people. For each person, these stock answers will obviously be different, but if you can take 15-20 minutes to write down your stock answers, read them aloud, and commit them to memory, your life will get a lot easier, I promise. And it'll make you better at having difficult conversations. I think for a lot of people it's that a bit like an onion, there's all these layers and sort of in the middle of the onion or in the middle of the fruit or whatever, to use our vegetable analogy, is that happiness and joy that, that we get from doing something that we really love. And when you peel away and peel away and peel away, it can feel very painful because we're sort of tearing away all this cultural conditioning or this expectations from families of who they think we should be or our friends and family. And you finally get to the bit in the middle, the core of who you really are. And it's obviously a beautiful and joyful experience. But some people never get to the middle, unfortunately, because they give up. They they stop digging. Uh, you know, as you said in the beginning, your photography wasn't always amazing as it is now. You maybe weren't as brilliant as you are now with, with regards to your recipes. And it was a long process. But have you got any advice to people who are going through this? Because I know a lot of people out there, they hate their jobs. They really don't feel fulfilled, but they don't know how to make that change. And they, you know, they've got a passion they might be doing on the side or, you know, doing some stuff in the evenings or things on the weekends. And they think, I couldn't make any money doing this. I couldn't survive on this. You know, how did you get through all of that? How did you get through all that time? What, what, what were the things that kept you moving forward? Again, I think like going back to the experience having gone traveling, I think travel just opens your eyes up to so many different things that I think are hard to think about when you're just in the everyday grind of your job, especially in a grinding culture like the US where you are just encouraged from a young age to just go, go, go and to like follow this path. Uh, and so when I was traveling and I didn't have to like be committed to any of these things, I got to see that there are people who get to do what they love, even if they're not making a ton of money. And to me, that seemed like a much more worthy life to live than to be making a lot of money doing something I hated. And then more practically, when I started to think about like, I don't think I want to be a lawyer anymore. I just started living below my means. Like it's not a sexy thing, but it's very helpful if you're thinking of quitting your job or turning your side hustle into a full-time career or even starting a side hustle. I started cutting back things that cost a lot of money, but didn't necessarily bring me happiness, like going to fancy restaurants or taking a taxi everywhere because I used to live in New York City, living well below my means really enabled me to build up a nest egg of money I could rely on then when I did want to quit my job and do something different. So that's like the very practical thing that I would encourage people to do. I also would encourage people to be really honest about 
what it is that you want to do with your life and what you're really passionate about. I think especially with the rise of social media, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to be like an Instagram influencer. But like, do you really want that? Or is it just because it seems like cool and sexy? What is it that you're actually passionate about? Because even if you're passionate about, say, food, it might not be that becoming an Instagram influencer is what the right path is for you, right? It might be opening your own cafe, or it might be becoming a consultant to plant-based companies. There's like so many different paths you can take. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in looking at what other people are doing because social media is a highlight reel. And so you just see like, oh, it must be so cool to do that. So I think being really honest with yourself and asking people in your life who you trust and respect, like, what do you think I would be good at? Like, there are a lot of different assessments you can do. But I think like career assessments and things like that. But I think honestly, just asking people who you trust and respect and know you well, like, do you have any advice on like things that I would be good at? And then taking that a step further is more of like professional kind of informal interviews with people. So if you really want to work in, let's say the vegan restaurant space, start finding people who do that and ask them for their time. Some people will say no, but I find that a lot of people are willing to give you time if you meet them on their terms, because people at the end of the day, like talking about themselves and their work. So if you express genuine enthusiasm and interest in what someone does, I think that a lot of them will be willing to talk with you and they can give you insight into what it's really like to work in that space. And you can see like, oh, maybe that's not for me. Maybe the restaurant industry sounds way too stressful. And I need to start thinking more about like different opportunities. So you do have to spend a good amount of time in the beginning thinking about like, what is it that I'm actually good at? And how can I create that into a career? Or, or at least into a side hustle, because for most people, you're going to be side hustling for a while while you do your full-time job before you can make that leap. Some really good advice there. One of the things that plagues a lot of people, particularly creative people, is the imposter syndrome, which yeah. is something that crops up in people's minds. And for those that don't know what it is, if you're blessed not to have it and experience yeah. it, it's when you constantly feel like you're an imposter in your own life, where you feel like all the amazing stuff that you're doing, no matter how many views you get, no matter how many follows you get, no matter how many awards you get, you constantly feel like you're not good enough, that you aren't quite the person that you think you should be. And you apply a lot of pressure to yourself to be the best and, and that level of perfectionism, which can be crippling for a lot of people to actually get anything done. Again, Korean vegan at Joanne Molinaro talks a lot about imposter syndrome as well. And you two have a lot of similarities, you know, coming from the legal world, moving into the content creator and food world. I remember back in 2010, I was getting ready for work. I put on a suit that day because I had to go to court. I pulled my hair back in a tight bun, all the things I need to do in order to look the part of a tough, intelligent lawyer. But all I could think about was how the day before, I shrank into the passenger seat of a car as a man I loved screamed at me and called me a bitch. I pressed my hand into my ears, shut my eyes, and begged him to stop yelling at me. Despite the reflection in front of me, all I could see was the craven image of the woman in that passenger seat. I concluded that the woman in the mirror, the one who'd go to court that day, trick everyone into thinking she was a tough, capable lawyer, was an imposter, a sham. The truth is, I was both of those women. The one sobbing and afraid in the passenger seat and the pit bull in the courtroom who pulled out all all the stops on behalf of her clients. Both of them could exist inside of me at the same time for a while, but eventually one of them overcame the other. I never believed I could do it, but I left the man who called me a bitch. But here's the thing. I love making everyone who doubts me remember that yes, I am that bitch. But have you experienced imposter syndrome and how have you personally dealt with it? Oh gosh, yes, uh, absolutely. So as an example, when my publisher approached me back in 2018 asking like, hey, Nisha, do you want to write a cookbook with us? I was like, 
are you thinking of another niche? Like, how does a major publisher think that I'm qualified? And even though I did spend a lot of energy and time and hard work on that first book, I was like, sooner or later, someone's going to figure out that I actually don't know what I'm doing, that I'm just like this baby chef pretending to like know what I'm doing. Another part of the reason I think I feel like an imposter sometimes is just being a woman in society where women are expected to be polite and demure and not showy and not bask in their success. And that's certainly something that's been ingrained into me. So the older I get, I try to say F that. <laughs> Forget that. You can swear on the podcast if you want yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. And I think the nature of being on social media, it's very easy to fall into the comparison trap because the metrics are there for you to see, right? Like you could be like, oh, I'm I'm not good at what I do because like so-and-so has so much more, you know, engagement or whatever than me. It's just so easy to fall into that. I think what has helped me over the last year or two is one, just the more that I do this, the more comfortable I become in my own skin. I develop more of that self-certainty and self-confidence, which is a really good antidote to imposter syndrome. I think also just tuning out a lot of, the noise and just not paying attention to what other people are doing and really just trying to cultivate my work and myself is a really good way to not look at, you know, the, is to not compare yourself. And I think that really helps as well, because once I started focusing on the process and the joy that I would get out of, say, making YouTube videos or developing a really great recipe and not looking at the metrics, I think that's when I started to feel like, oh my God, I love what I do and I'm really good at it. And I'm bringing joy and satisfaction to other people. And so these days I don't actually look at really metrics at all. So I'm blessed to have a very supportive partner, Max, who does a lot of the more technical, logistical strategy sides of things. So he looks at the metrics and he kind of analyzes them. And I just focus on being the creator and doing the things I love and creating connection with my community. So having a supportive partner certainly helps with not having that imposter syndrome. But for anyone who's listening, who is struggling with that, I would say just try to get out of, try to get out of your own head and then focus on what you're doing and stop looking at what other people are doing. Some good advice there. As the amazing artist, I think he's from New York, Taylor Mack says, comparison is violence. We should not be uh, comparing ourselves to others because I think when we do that, as you said, it can really demotivate us and make us feel like what we are doing is just not good enough. But nobody starts at the top, do they, of what they do. No one starts at the top of their game. Uh, it takes years of, of practice and commitment uh, and determination to build a level of artistry which can be you know, internationally recognized my boyfriend Max has a real problem. He's addicted to Indian food. Seriously though, he orders Indian takeout at least once a week. While he does love the Indian dishes I make at home, like my red lentil curry or dal makhani, he often craves the Indian dish he grew up eating the most as a child, chicken tikka masala. And honestly, Max's relationship with chicken tikka masala kind of offends me. Not so much because it's not vegan, but because I thought I was the only saucy Indian snack in his life. Rude. So today I'm making a veganized version of his favorite Indian dish to see if I can finally get him to break up with Indian takeout. Speaking of artistry, so Rainbow Plant Life, which is your, your brand, like how did it start and where did it start? Like how did you decide to, to, to get involved? Where did you start decide to begin with it? Because there's a million ways in which you can start creating in this way, but where did you all start? Uh, I wish I could say I had this grand vision when I started, but I, I really just opened my Instagram account in the spring of 2016 as this like creative outlet to share food with photos of food I was making. Uh, I was still a lawyer at that time. So there wasn't a lot of intentionality behind it aside from like, I'd like to 
you know, do this creative thing. And again, I had gone vegetarian around the same time. I was noticing just how colorful and vibrant a plant-based diet was. And so I wanted to showcase that. But in the beginning days, it was really just a fun Instagram outlet. And it wasn't until probably 2019 that I was able to go full time and devote like all of my time to building an actual blog and a YouTube channel and things like that. So in the beginning, it was just like a fascination with color and, and food and to want to share that with people. There wasn't anything else behind it. You know, It kind of grew over time. It's quite a common story and quite a common response when I ask people that, like, how did your idea begin? And, and I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there, that outlet, that creative outlet when you're in a job or you're doing something that you're not feeling fulfilled by to have a little tiny glimmer of hope in some other thing or a foot in some other thing that just keeps you sane. <laughs> I'm just going to spend some time over here. And, you know, you've obviously nourished it and nurtured it over time. And it's become a beautiful thing that you've been working on and you are working on full time. But how did you take it from that, that early stage to where it is now? And, and where is it now? And how, and, you know, wh- where are you now with your work? And, and how, how does it, how does it work, your work? <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of scaling the business, that really wasn't something I could do until I went full time. Back in the there began basically January first, twenty seventeen, I stopped practicing law and I started working at a food startup where I did social media, I did food photography, I did some development of recipes, like a bunch of different things. And I was just kind of in the early, very early stages of Rainbow Plant Life, kind of doing that on the side in stolen hours in the morning and after work in the evening before bed and things like that. And it was really impossible to scale the business when I was working full time, you don't have certainly the hours, but you also don't have the mental capacity to fully focus on big picture goals and to really think about how you want your business to be. So I was able to, in the summer of 2019, leave my job at the startup and go full time on Rainbow Plant Life. And that was around the same time my first cookbook came out. So that was really kind of the the birth, I think, of of my business because I got to start thinking about it full time, really thinking about how do I want to build this business? What value do I want to be giving to my community? And so basically from then, almost three years ago, it's really just been about how can I get more people to enjoy vegan food or to move more in the direction of plant-based food? And so that always guides me. And in terms of scaling the business, I will say that like I spend most of my time creating and I'm very focused on day-to-day stuff, getting stuff done. And so for a while, I was creating all this great content, but not really seeing results in terms of like traffic or things like that, or, you know, the the metrics, again, the things that I don't really like paying attention to, but I credit my partner Maxwell with a lot of the success of the business because he started working with me Basically, when the pandemic started, we're both at home, so he could help some videos, we could strategize, we could meet together. And he's just very analytical and thoughtful and someone who has a lot of big picture ideas and can sit with an idea and turn it into something really great that I can then execute. And so being able to put our heads together and our different skill sets together has really enabled us to scale the business across YouTube and our blog and Instagram, things like that. And so these days, those are the three main platforms I'm on. I also have my email list and I just you know, finished my second cookbook manuscript, which has been a big, big, big project. 
So that's kind of where the business is today. I don't know if I <laughs> answered your question or just. No, no. I mean, it's great to hear where you're at. Where I mean, you've come a long way, haven't you? And that's the thing. When you look back at where you started and where you're at now and the growth that you've had and, and the, the, the impact that you've had, uh, it must feel great to look back over that. And as you said, we talked a little bit about imposter syndrome. But for me, a lot of the time, the, one of the antidotes to imposter syndrome is to take that moment and compare where you were when you started to where things are now and really remember that journey because it's not for the faint-hearted, for those who want to go out on their own and do their own thing, particularly as a woman as well. As you said, you know, I've spoken a lot to the team at Vegan Women in summit and they've told us a lot about how you know some of the statistics around women in business is shocking here i think in i think i think in the us or the uk in com- combination but the amount of um, investment that goes to women women founders is less than 3% women of color is even less at like 1.2% uh, obviously that's frustrating but how do you feel about sort of being a woman in business and have you experienced sort of challenges personally with regards to what you do you know as you say you mentioned earlier about being taken seriously or being treated in a specific way and, and this sort of this culture of our society expecting women to be and act and, and and exist in a certain way. Sure. Well, I will say that I feel very grateful that I'm shielded from a lot of this because I am my own boss and the way I've structured my business. So I luckily don't have to deal with most of the things that other women in business do, like chefs or founders of food startups who are trying to get capital. You know, eventually if I do start my own product or something like that, I'm sure there there will be those struggles that I'll have to deal with. I think being on social media, obviously they're sometimes rude and sexist people who feel offended when you take a strong stance against sexism or racism or the patriarchy or whatever it might be that they don't want to hear about. So to a certain extent I am used to that and mostly am able to ignore it. But I think Another thing that, you know, bothers me, and I'm sure almost every woman is that women just aren't valued as much as chefs and as creators of food, even though women do the vast majority of cooking at home, women basically ensure that humanity doesn't starve, but the vast majority of celebrated chefs and the chefs who are labeled the best of the best are are almost always men. And we all know that's not because men are inherently better cooks than women. So there's definitely that struggle. But again, like I said, because I am my own boss, for the most part, I am luckily you know, shielded from a lot of that, at least at this stage in my career. Yeah, sure. No, of course. But you, you touched there a bit on on behavior of particular, you know, some men in our society. Uh, a friend of mine, Chef Priyanka, she's amazing. She's shared a lot of stuff with me. We've chatted a lot about social media and the sort of toxic part of social media. It can bring so much joy, connect amazing people. There's a lot of ugliness that we have to endure as people. I myself as a member of the LGBT community have experienced some pretty horrific messages and comments. Uh, you know, I've, I'm sure you've experienced equal, if not more kind of stuff as a, as a, as a woman of color in this space. What can we do, do you think, though, to sort of combat this type of behavior? Because obviously, there are times it just doesn't stop. And there's, there's always some asshole out there who just feels like they want to ruin our day by by coming at us with some really ignorant commentary. I love what um, Tabitha Brown says. She has this quote where she says, honey, have a nice day. And, and, if, you're, and if you're not going to have a nice day, don't go and ruin somebody else's day. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Which I love it. It's such a simple thing. But how do we deal with these people that really make it their mission to bring down creators and attack people in comments and, and DMs? You know, How do you personally deal with that type of stuff on a day-to-day basis? I try to remind myself that if someone is going to take the time to spread hate to someone they don't know online, that 
that person obviously has a lot of struggles in their life. They obviously are very unhappy or miserable or depressed or have, you know, a lot of their own issues going on. And so I try not to take it personally and, and often feel bad that this person is lashing out in this way and often hate is a response to hating yourself. And so I'm not saying I always just rise above and like, it's fine, it's fine. Sometimes I do get annoyed. But I think remembering that perspective, like it's, it's not really about me, right? So I try to just ignore it. I also just don't get to all my DMs. So, you know, I'm not going to see them all. I can't get to all the YouTube comments. So sometimes the hateful heart ones just go into the spam filter and I never have to see it. And I think it's a good way to like distance yourself from that. If you are someone who that does get to very easily to just implement the filters that platforms have given you, they're not perfect, but to, to do that, because it's so much more important for your mental health to just not see that stuff. If that's something that will really affect you. People really love to joke about how vegans only eat kale. My advice is just because you've given up eating animals and animal products, you don't have to lose your sense of humor. Of course, there is a big difference between making a joke and intentionally being offensive. So if someone makes a joke about how they like to murder animals, I will not be laughing and I'll probably punch them in the balls. But if someone makes a joke about how you can tell when someone's vegan because they won't stop talking about how they're vegan, I'm gonna laugh because it's funny and it's true. Look at me, I'm vegan and that's literally all I talk about on this channel. Vegan. 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 When I first went vegan, I tried to tell everyone that they should also go vegan. I thought that by sharing important information and raising awareness, it would easily change their minds. I was wrong. Most people just ended up feeling judged. Only later did I learn that psychologists have studied this exact phenomenon. What they found essentially is that when meat eaters feel like they're being judged by vegans, they go into ego protection mode. What that means is that not only do they not change their behavior or stop eating meat, but they also start to think less of vegans. It was only when I changed my approach that I started to see success. Instead of telling people, hey, you should go vegan too, I started showing them how delicious, how rewarding, how satisfying a vegan lifestyle could be. I started to get so many responses from omnivores who would say things like, wow, if vegan food can be this delicious, I can definitely go vegan. And it's through this same approach that I've convinced hundreds of thousands of people to reduce their animal consumption. I think another thing that's really important is the more we see diverse creators in the space, whether they be people of color or women or LGBTQ folks, the more it becomes kind of just everyday regular fact of the matter that like there are these great creators who are, they're, they're diverse. And, and I think just seeing that makes it just more the norm. And I think that the more we see that, Hopefully, the less pervasive those comments will be. I don't know. Uh, sometimes I am disappointed by my hopes. But I think celebrating the diversity and showcasing people from all different walks of life is hopefully going to combat it in some way in the future. Mm, I agree. I think we have to all stand together against this type of behavior. And social networks have made big strides in trying to combat this type of behavior. And you can go into your settings, uh, your block settings on your Instagram or your Facebook, and you can add banned words or blocked words. So if there's certain patterns that you see emerging in your comment section of your content, you can add those words in, and then you'll never see comments that mention those words. And those people will be restricted and hidden from, from the public, and they will get no engagement and no traction. So it is worth protecting yourself. Instagram also has a new feature called limits. So if you are finding yourself being you know, attacked or verbally abused by maybe it's a collection of people, 
You can enable limits and it'll stop new followers or people who haven't followed you for a certain amount of time, I believe, from commenting or interacting or sending you DMs as well. So yeah, we have definitely need to protect our mental health as creators because we are out there in front of the public, in front of millions of people. Sometimes, you know, I forget that the content we put out is seen by millions of people. And sometimes when you stop and think about that, it can become a bit overwhelming. But at the end of the day, you know, we're here. I feel like we're here to serve people and give them the inspiration they need in this lifestyle. So speaking of the lifestyle, we haven't dived much into it yet, but let's talk about the food because obviously it's it's everything about what you do and it's the, it's the core part of what you do. Where's your food inspiration? Because there are a million different ways to create when it comes to food. There are, I think, 55,000 different fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes and herbs and roots. And there's so many plants and things that we can that are edible uh, that we can use. And when people say, oh, the vegan diet is so restrictive, and you're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you seen the numbers? But where's your inspiration come from? Because obviously, that, you know, that can also be overwhelming too as a food creator. Where do I start? What kind of cult cuisine? cuisine do I do I create where do I where do I get involved so yeah where did it start for you yeah I have so many sources of inspiration one is the seasons I think everybody not everybody knows this but I think a lot of people know fruits and vegetables taste so much better when they're in season and that's so important when you're on a plant-based diet because you're going to be eating a lot of those things and so I'll often just go to the farmer's market and pick what's good and then maybe I've brought peaches home and I'll think about okay like what flavor pairing do I like with peaches that I've either had in the past or I've seen at a restaurant or seen in the magazine and start working my way through a recipe that way Oftentimes, meals I've had at restaurants will inspire me, especially when I used to live in New York City and there's just a new restaurant everywhere. Even at non-vegan restaurants, I'm always thinking like, okay, how can I make that meal that my friend or whoever is eating, but do something similar with plants or like replicate those flavors? Meals I've had on my travels certainly inspire me. As I mentioned, I did a six-month backpacking trip and we were in Southeast Asia a lot. And so there's so much global inspiration that goes into my recipes. If I'm being honest, I don't love American food. So yeah. People say English food or American food, but it's like... (laughs) I don't... Is it like a chef? No, that's uh, an Irish thing. Like there's, you know, like there's not a lot of seasoning and flavor. Is junk food food. American food? Right. Yes, it is. Absolutely. The standard American diet, right? Which is the SAD diet, this SAD. Absolutely. I'm always finding ways to incorporate cooking techniques and ingredients from other cultures in a way that's, you know, still respectful. Obviously, like being Indian and watching my mom cook growing up and now cooking with her together, like that inspires me to like explore Indian cuisine more, you know, looking at other cookbooks and food publications, honestly, especially non-vegan ones, because I think that if you're in a niche space, it's very easy to look at, say, a vegan recipe cookbook or a vegan creator's video and just copy that even if you're unintentionally doing that right so I try to limit that and look honestly at non-vegan stuff because then I can then think about oh my gosh I have so many ideas for turning that into a plant-based idea or I can replicate that using chickpeas or tofu and just thinking about how other chefs pair ingredients and flavors and finding my own plant-based spin on it so there's so many different ways I approach recipe development and where I get my inspiration from mm, amazing and what is your do you have a favorite because obviously you mentioned going into Asia and you're backpacking and I, I've spent about seven or eight weeks in Thailand myself uh, traveling around Thailand and I absolutely fell in love with the flavors there's lemongrass and garlic and chili and so many different layers to the food and and, you know 
I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in Africa and Zimbabwe. And um, the food culture I grew up around was kind of very earthy. Like, you know, it was a meat, very meat heavy culture, but it, but actually meat was a smaller part of the dish. It was a big bowl of what we call sadza, which is like cornmeal made into like a porridge, like a sticky porridge, like, a, and you roll it into a ball. And then there was uh, greens uh, and there was, uh, you know, very simple eating, whereas British food, which is like meat and veg, was often vegetables boiled within an inch of their life. So they had no flavor. And then some kind of meat that was, again, you know, completely tasteless. But going to Asia and going to Thailand and experiencing that with all those different layers of flavor on top, because that's such a beautiful part of cooking, isn't it? Which is, as you said, the pairing of flavors. How have you learned that? Because obviously, is that just trial and error? Or is that from your travels? How did you learn about what goes with what? Because obviously, there's a lot of things that just definitely do not go together. And there's just some that work like heaven. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of it is intuition. And then a lot of it is practicing, experimenting, and uh, yes, absolutely traveling. I would say Thailand had the best food of my life as well. Like I was saying, like I'm very interested in learning. So like if I have a really good noodle soup in Thailand, I might then later go look up like, what is this noodle soup? What are the flavors that they use? What are the ingredients they use? Like what's the order in which they're doing? Are they doing the shallots and lemongrass first? Or are they doing the chili peppers first? They do it all together. Like when does the coconut milk come in? When does the lime juice come in? Like I'm very much interested in learning that. And so I will do a lot of research and a lot of research over time gives you kind of the ability to do it on your own. Of course, I still will look at blogs or YouTube videos, ideally from someone who is Thai, if we're talking about Thai food or Chinese, someone who's Chinese, if we're talking about Chinese food, just so I can see like, how do people who are from that culture actually do it? So then I can understand like, what is the proper order of things? Maybe there's, you know, variations across different chefs and things like that. But I want like a baseline knowledge before I then go and try something that I'm going to share with other people. Yeah, so we touched on cultural appropriation over cultural appreciation. And uh, if you're going to make a Tom Carr soup, you know, you want to follow it as it's traditionally made. But some creators might create a Tom Carr and then put their own twist on it. And they might throw goodness knows what in there. I don't know, peanut butter, whoever, whatever. <laughs> Cool. There's food, and then there's the love of food, but then there's also the human side, which is our culture, our traditions. How do we, as sort of creators and 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 people who want to really, uh, you know, aware, I hate the word woke because it's not a great word, but how do we people who are aware, self-aware, who treat other people's cultures with sensitivity and the respect that they deserve when it comes to creating online? When we are sharing recipes, if we were making a Tom Car, you know, should we be writing a a preamble about the history of the dish should we be talking about popular thai vegan chefs in the space when we when we do the recipes how can we be supporting other creators of those cultures that we are creating recipes for in a way that's effective and isn't just sort of like is sort of you know trivial if that makes sense sure i think there's on the one hand the desire for like everything to be authentic and i think that's problematic in the sense that there's almost never an authentic version of a recipe especially if you're talking about a country as diverse as thailand or india that doesn't mean you can't be respectful towards that culture and the cuisine and the ingredients and the cooking techniques but if i were to say like this is an authentic tom ka soup like i'm sure there's a million thai people are like that's not how my grandma makes it that's not how my mom makes it right like so And on the other hand, there is like, oh, I put curry powder in this, so I'm going to call this an Indian curry or whatever, right? Like that's obvious. There's a two very extreme ways to approach it. 
personally, I, as I mentioned, very interested in learning the cultural context behind a recipe, how chefs from that culture, that country approach the particular recipe, what the meaning of the recipe is. And I'm not saying that everybody has to go down that rabbit hole that I do, but I think that if you want to share recipes from a culture that is not your own, you know, you have to do it in a respectful way. You you don't necessarily need to require every single ingredient from a specialty store, but like, you know, you do have to put some thought into how you're sharing that because for a long time and still continuing, like a lot of white chefs, a lot of white creators have profited by sharing watered down recipes from other cultures, right? Like if you Google a lot of Asian recipes, all the top results are white bloggers. And that's not to say that if you are white, you shouldn't cook Asian food. Absolutely not. But a lot of times those recipes are watered down versions. And so then people start to think that this is how a Chinese recipe should be when really the Chinese chefs and Chinese creators who are creating that, like they have the actual knowledge of how to create the most delicious and uh, version of that, but their recipes aren't being showcased on Google or on YouTube or whatever it is. So I think if you want to share recipes from a different culture, like be thoughtful, be respectful, be interested in learning, obviously like look at recipes and videos from creators who are from that culture where appropriate, you know, links to their blogs or whatever it might be. And certainly don't not create recipes from those cultures if you're interested in them, if you genuinely love them, but just be thoughtful about it. For those of us who want to get more into food and more into cooking and are passionate about it, but kind of feel a bit like afraid of going into the kitchen because there's a lot of people out there that are a bit overwhelmed by vegan cooking and plant-based cooking. We're brought Most people are brought up with animal products and it can be somewhat simplistic in the kitchen, you know, piece of meat on a, on a frying pan, boiling some vegetables or steaming some vegetables, as, said, as I said before, yeah. which I had to enjoy, endure it as a child. And then you, you meet this sort of vegan plant-based world and you go on Instagram and, and, and a lot of the dishes are intense. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of ingredients and there's ingredients that you may never have heard of before and things that come from all over the place. And I mentioned the likes of Gaz, Gaz Oakley in the beginning when we first started talking, you know, a lot of Gaz's recipes have a lot of things going on and it's very intimidating. <laughs> How do we keep it simple and what, what, where did we begin when, when we're starting this journey of moving away from a, a carnistic or an omnivorous diet to one that is um, predominantly plants or and ideally all plants? Yeah, so I like to encourage people when you're starting out to feel very creative in the sense that like go to like several different blogs or cookbooks and pick out maybe five recipes that you want to try. Ideally, a diversity of recipes, maybe from different cuisines or different types of recipes. And commit to making those over the course of a week or two weeks or whatever it might be. And then start to see like what it is that you gravitate towards, right? Like maybe you hate, I don't know, stews and soups because they feel too mushy, but maybe you're really attracted to other kinds of foods. Or maybe you realize that you just absolutely love East Asian food and so you want to try more of that. And I think that if a recipe requires a lot of ingredients, it helps to just understand that like you could probably still make a good version of that if you don't have a couple of the ingredients right if you don't have half of them probably not but like you can still try a recipe that you might not have every single ingredient for and see how it goes I think there's just so much creative inspiration and resources out on the internet in 2022 certainly more than when I went vegan in 2016 so like 
there's so many ways to do a plant-based diet. If you're on a budget, it's very easy to Google so many resources on how to do it on a budget. And no, you don't have to eat rice and beans for every meal. I have a video on my YouTube channel, like how to eat really, really well on $5 a day. Like you can do it. If you are gluten-free because you have celiacs or something and you still want to go plant-based, like there's hundreds of resources online and how to do that in a gluten-free way. So I think there's just so many ways to approach a vegan diet. And with the wealth of information that is out there at this point, I, I think that like, use it, don't be afraid to use it, use all that information because you can really tailor whatever you're looking for, whether it's a 10 minute recipe or an hour long recipe, whether it's a Japanese recipe or an Ethiopian recipe, there's just so many ways to do it. And there's so many resources out there that are just waiting for you to explore them. Yeah, don't be afraid to fail at the end of the day. That's the most important thing. So I'm just bringing up your YouTube channel to bring up your most popular videos. Oh, okay. <laughs> the most popular video on your channel is the hardest food for vegans to give up, which is of course is cheese. Yeah. It's surprisingly easy to make your own vegan cheese. People don't realize the simplicity of these kind of dishes. You know, when it comes to this type of food, do you think that people should be making their own rather than buying store-bought stuff? Because obviously we've just been through a pandemic. We all had a lot of time at home. These kind of things take a bit of practice, but do you feel like, we, especially with regards to all the conversations around plastic and sustainability, do you think more people should be trying to make more of the kinds of foods that we eat every day, but a lot of people take for granted by just getting from the supermarket? I don't want to like give any prescriptive advice because it really depends on where you are in life, right? Like if you work 12 hours a day and you really don't have time to sit there and soak your cashews and blend them and make your homemade cheese, I'm not going to fault you for buying vegan cheese at the store, right? Like I want people to do what works for their lifestyle. And yes, of course, if you buy packaged products, they come in plastic for the most part, but there are other ways you can offset your carbon footprint, right? Like going vegan itself, right? That is one of the hugest things you can do to live a more eco-friendly life, if you, if whatever you want to call it. So my personal approach is I try for the most part to cook whole foods. I love experimenting with plants and legumes and vegetables and creating the same flavors and textures and flavor profiles that I used to have when I would eat meat or dairy. But occasionally, you know, I might have five minutes, 10 minutes to make dinner and like a vegan sausage, it's going to bring the dinner together. And I'm fine with that, right? So I think people need to do what works for their lifestyle, for their budget and for their nutritional needs. Uh, yeah, that's a great answer. And I think that the, the question should have been more, how puritanical are you about uh, what you yeah. eat? Which is really, you know, a big question for a lot of people. They go, oh, I'm vegan. Does that mean I have to eat only healthy food? And should I never absolutely have, not. <laughs> you know, your, your YouTube channel is absolutely exploding with loads of amazing things that you could buy in a store or you could make yourself. And of course, I'm of the opinion, if you have the time, as you said, to make something yourself, it's always going to be probably much better because it's made with the love and attention of someone who, you know, has practiced. But before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were starting on a desert island and it was just you and a pig obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan but if i could give you one vegan dish one music album and one book what would you take with you nisha oh oh one vegan dish i'm going to give you a generic like answer of like a southeast asian curry noodle soup hybrid i would say would be my favorite one book i would say Americana. It's a really good book. I really love that book. 
and one album. Gosh. So I'm like at the point in my life where I mostly live to listen to podcasts and instrumental music while I work. So I'm super boring. So I have to like dig back in the archives of like what, (laughs) what music I liked when I was younger. I would say, Oh, I sound so boring. Um, I would do like a, a mixed CD of 90s hip hop and R&B that like I would customize with all of my favorite stuff. Amazing. I love the sound of that. Nisha, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was a pleasure to sit down and speak to you. It was really lovely. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, environment, and everything in between. 